Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 457 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Today's episode is an interview that Adam and I did with Connie Schultz. She is a uh, local columnist, a former columnist here from Cleveland. She had a column in the Cleveland Plain Dealer for a long time and currently teaches journalism at Kent State University. She has a new novel out, uh, The Daughters of Erie Town. So we got to spend some time talking to her about that as well as, um, you know, the state of journalism in 2020. And yeah, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. We're both big fans of hers. Um, read her column for a really long time. Those who are in Ohio and at least in Northeast Ohio are well aware of the fact that her husband is Senator Sherrod Brown, which we're, who we are also big fans of. Um, and he gets mentioned a bit, um, in the podcast as well. Um, right. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at probooknerds and you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. I think that's everything. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this interview with Connie Schultz, um, where she talks about her book, The Daughters of Erie Town. And yeah, so enjoy this interview on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. This is Jill and Adam, and with us today we have Connie Schultz, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and author of Life Happens and Other Unavoidable Truths, which is a collection of her columns, and his lovely wife, which shakes us behind the scenes of her husband, Senator Sherrod Brown's campaign trail. Her latest book, The Daughters of Erie Town, is out now. Connie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jill and Adam. We love having our authors kind of open up our conversations by giving our listeners an introduction to your book. So can you kind of introduce our listeners who might not be aware to The Daughters of Erie Town? Sure. Um, well, it's my first novel, and it took a long time to write, longer than my agent or my editor would have liked. Um, but it's about a working class family, especially the women, the working class women in the small town on the Shore of Lake Erie, written by a woman who grew up as a member of a working class family in a small town on the shore of Lake Erie. And it, there are a number of um, narrative arcs, I, I guess. One of them I would definitely describe as this, that working class people are very much like luckier people, meaning more affluent people. They have their own hopes and dreams. They have so much invested in their children. But then the big problems come and they have no money to fix them. And that's when everything can derail. And it doesn't mean they don't still have those hopes and dreams for their children. And in fact, often they pivot to invest all of it, some, some would argue, inflict it on their children. And children who are lucky enough to go to college, uh, I was the first in my family, which is probably, not even probably, certainly one of the reasons I wanted to have a character named Sam, Samantha, who also is the first in her family to go to college, and because I wanted to also show the tensions that are inevitable when you are forever straddling two worlds, coming from a family, carrying all their hopes and dreams on your back, but also being exposed to a world they have never known and wanting to refine and reform and revise who you want to be in the world. So I wanted to be able to show that as well. But I also wanted to show the evolution of women's roles, including in the working class, 
over several decades. And, and hence the title, The Daughters of Erie Town, because the women are the starry, really have the starring roles in this novel, except for one um, very strong, willful man named Rick McGinty. Uh, you said this is your first novel. What made you want to write fiction? Well, I was never one, you know, a lot of journalists you'll meet will tell you they always wanted to write fiction, but they needed to make a living, so they became journalists. That, I couldn't believe that I could become a writer and make a living at it, that I could get paid for writing. It really was my love, and it has been for more than 30 years. But right before my second book came out, Amanda's um, Lovely Wife, my editor, Kate Medina, and the publisher of Random House took me to lunch and really made the pitch that the working class is um, underrepresented in modern literature. That is a fact. I certainly wasn't going to argue that. Uh, and they thought maybe I could do something about that. And it took a long time. I mean, that was, let's see, 2007. So clearly that, that idea didn't kick in right away for me. But I kept thinking about it. And I kept, the more I thought about it, and the longer I kept doing everything else I do, I mean, I'm a newspaper columnist and I'm syndicated. I'm, I'm still writing many other pieces, of course. I teach. I'm a professional resident at my alma mater at Kent State now. And uh, I'm the wife of a U.S. senator, which can be a very busy, unpaying job at times. Um, the more I thought about it, the more I thought I need to carve out time to, t to try to tell this story. And I really reached a point in my life personally where I thought my only regret will be if I don't write this novel. I will never regret trying it. Um, but I could have real regret not having followed through on it. And fortunately, I had an editor who was just never going to take her claws out of me. And my agent, Gail Ross, very much the same way. I mean, they just, where's the book? Where's the book? Where's the book? And now, um, even though they're excited for all the coverage, the great reviews, every time I talk to them, particularly Kate Medina, my editor, she'll, she ends the conversation with, I certainly hope you're writing, click. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> and it, uh, at least I need those people in my life. And I am so lucky to have those two women who will never give up on me, apparently. Uh, you mentioned... <laughs> Uh, you know, having a, a fabulous editor who always had their teeth in you, which is a really funny way of saying that. Um, people who are familiar with you do you know, like you mentioned, being a columnist and, and you write a number of essays currently, but you also have done a ton of like long form journalistic pieces. So I'm yes. curious, what is the, like, how did it feel different editing fiction as opposed to maybe editing one of those longer series, like the, the journalistic stuff that you are really well known for? Um, that's an insightful question because I think what you're asking, you know what you're asking here is the serial narrative, the narrative journalism requires using the fiction writer's tools to tell a nonfiction story. And I have done a number of those over the years and they definitely helped me find my confidence in writing fiction. I mean, the big difference, is, and that was under my editor, Stuart Warner. He was a fantastic, is, is still, but he's not my editor anymore, but he's a fantastic editor. And the thing I had to learn and really get, get used to and pivot to is, when you're working on a narrative series, if you have a gap, if you need more information, you have a history, you can just do research, you can pick up the phone and interview someone. When you're writing a novel, there's no one to talk to except the people rattling the cage in your head. Um, and I know how weird that can sound to somebody who doesn't write fiction. I suspect anyone who does knows exactly what I'm talking about. So I had to turn inward rather than looking outward for the additional help. So that was a process for me that I had to develop. And quite frankly, it's not dissimilar from when I first started to become a journalist, the biggest leap I had to make was believing that I was a journalist. And I would quite literally look in the mirror some mornings and say, you are a writer, you are a journalist. And when I was very young, in my early 20s, 
now the narrative has to be, I, every time I'm called a novelist, um, it still catches me a bit because it's not what I've called myself ever. But I do have this very long novel now out and it's doing well and I'm so excited about it and so grateful to readers. So I'm, I think I'm finally making that leap for myself, certainly with now that I've begun writing on working on the second one, it seems that I am starting to absorb that part of myself as well. It's an exciting time at my age. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure that writing fiction is probably a lot more liberating than writing, you know, a nonfiction piece because you, you tell the story, you're the one in charge there. It can be liberating once you get used to it. But at first it was pretty scary. Um, because I have spent decades interviewing other people, right? And telling other people's stories. And even if I'm telling stories from my own life, I have what, at least my memory of what they are to, to rely on. Um, you know, I tell my students all the time, if you're not scared, you stop growing. And so I think I'm probably going through a growth spurt right now because I'm often terrified. <laughs> not as much now as I was three weeks ago. How's this novel going to do? What are people going to make of it, right? I was, I am nervous about it, but I, that is a good thing. I've done this for enough years to know that it is important sometimes to get nervous. And when I wrote the second book, it was about taking a leave of absence from the plane dealer shortly after the Pulitzer, not the typical career move after that, to go on the campaign trail for my husband and to be with him full, you know, not, and to avoid any conflict of interest. That was another big leap of faith. And I was really nervous about that. What I've learned and one of the benefits of being older at this now is um, if you've done that enough times, you know that the landing may not always be easy, but it is so worth what you discover once you get there. I would assume, I assume is a bad word. I would imagine that having such a, an in-depth background as a journalist, though, probably did help some parts of the writing process of fiction. You know, I'm, I'm imagining there's a little bit of research and, and things of that nature, um, that's my dog pops up in the back. I can see the tail <laughs> makes me so yeah, happy. There is, yeah. Um, I would imagine that having that kind of research process and like being used to that part, like that probably helped even though you were writing something that was coming out of your own brain. Well, you know what it is? It's your comfort zone. So when I would really get stuck, I would occasionally do some historical research because I needed to have more of that in the book. And that was a very conscious decision on my part to do it with the encouragement of my editor. So, for example, um, and sometimes it, it was serendipitous, like it, John and Annie Glenn were both very dear friends of ours. Um, and a friend in Montana sent me um, a copy of Life magazine from 1962 about Annie Glenn and um, how hard it had been for her to wait at home while her husband circled the earth. And I thought and I knew Annie was very sick at that point. Annie just recently died. Um, and I, you know what, this is a perfect moment for one of the main female characters, Ellie, to be talking to her friend about how we never talk about the heroism in women and what a hero Annie Glenn was. And it could be a nod to my friend, but based in facts, I think the, the fact that there's multiple pages of um, a, news, a, a magazine story about her um, and so much a part of that time in history, part of the reason they did that um, was there had been so much coverage of John and some editor, I'm assuming male, had this idea, well, what was it like to be Annie Glenn during that time? This story to me, this novel in part, is about the small acts of heroism that are not at all small to the people who are on the receiving end of them by people who are typically anonymous, right? People that we tend not to pay attention to. Understand, I was raised by a mother 
who said, don't marry him until you see how he treats the waitress. And what she meant by that, of course, is how we treat the people we're allowed to mistreat is the measure of who we are. And that was in the back of my mind throughout the writing of this novel. Just, yeah, that's very true. That's good. That's a very good point. I was um, going to say, yeah, I was just saying, <laughs> like, like, every, I feel like, Connie, like every other thing you say is like a quote that I want to put up on like a poster or something. I was just like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no one can see the, the Zoom call around, but Jill and I both just like nodded our heads thoughtfully, like, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do I, I tell my that? kids you said that? I always tell my kids that they better start making posters of my quotes because I never hear that from our kids. Uh, <laughs> um, so you sort of touched on this a little bit, but the Daughters of Erie Town, you know, examines this idea of choice and how we want to believe we can create our own life by making our own choices, but life has other plans. One um, of the characters says, nobody gets the life they planned. We get what God plans and we spend the rest of our lives trying not to hold it against them. So can you maybe go a little more in depth about why you specifically wanted to kind of examine that in a novel? Because, first of all, most of us are bigger than our worst mistakes. But our worst mistakes can determine who we'll be in terms of how we see ourselves for the rest of our lives. And so one mistake leads to another, leads to another. We also can really feel the pressure of what the public expects of us, what our culture expects of us. Certainly that is true of women. And in this book, it is true of people of color as well. I mean, the working class has never been just all white. Um, Like Sam in the book, half of my um, classes in all of elementary school were black students. And so I wanted to make clear that our roots are our beginnings, but they're not our excuses. And I wanted to show that through Sam, some of the greatest tension between her and her father for years is over race. But I also wanted to show how it is true that we try to determine our own destinies as much as we can but life does interrupt and life um, does can wear you down, right? Depending on how you approach it and what kind of support you have around you. Um, one of the things I wanted to show also is how the friendships of women can really embolden, embolden them and at least bolster them in, in troubling times. Ellie has a best friend named Marty. Um, and some of their conversations, you see the evolution of their friendship and the evolution of women's role in the times. And I'm thinking, for example, when Ellie decides when her daughter is of age, she's going to buy our body ourselves for her, goes out of town to get it because she didn't want anybody to know she was getting it because it's basically a giant manual on sex education and birth control. And I have my original copy of that from the 70s. So that was handy in that moment. But I wanted to use moments like that to show that Ellie made a choice to get back to your word choice. She could have just hoped and prayed and lectured her daughter that nice girls don't have sex or she could have done something to because she knew she couldn't control what her daughter would do but she could certainly have something to do with the information her daughter had by the time she was ready yeah i was i was thinking about that um my husband and i recently watched the tv show mrs america which (laughs) which has some very similar themes you know you have these the, the the tension between um the, the women who are traditional housewives and excel and want to be stay-at-home moms versus um, the libbers, as they call them, like the feminists who have, you know, just that tension that happens and it happens in generational differences too between, you know, Ellie and Sam and um, Ellie starts to sort of, you know, have her own awakening about what life could look like. 
Well, and I wanted, I really enjoyed watching This is America, <clears throat> which I think is an important series. Um, because for me, the book takes you to the next, to, to the the forgotten women who, who often mm -hmm. felt forgotten during that movement. They weren't the more affluent women who could afford to do this activism, who could afford to fly to, you know, for the, the convention and that sort of thing. These were the women who felt virtually forgotten by the women's movement, which out of necessity was how it was going to be, I think, to some extent, because you, like Betty Friedan had the means to publish this book. You know, she was writing about a lot of housewives who just stay home. In my neighborhood, it was already not unusual for mothers to be working, at least part-time, because we were a working-class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to tell that story during that time as well, and which is why I so heavily researched it. Um, I wanted to be as accurate as possible, but it's also the time I grew up in. I, I was born the same year as Sam, and I did that for convenience sake, because I know, and I went to Kent State, so I had her go, because it's the one college I knew well. Um, I also, though, you know, it's one thing to kind of remember the era of your times. It's quite another to actually know what month and what year did that song come out, and when did that move in? So mm -hmm. um, the copywriter was really good helping me with that occasionally, but I also, you know those pamphlets? I don't even know if they make them anymore, but if you were born in 1957 and it shows all that I have those from like 1946 through 1996 and I had to get them on Etsy and Amazon and eBay and I just got them anywhere I could because they give you the number one song they, they give you and so it gave me a starting place and then I could research when the song was actually released to make because people will I mean like right now <laughs> I worry so much about accuracy and we forgot to change uh at Nessa's name throughout, it was uh, to Mrs. Miss Travis rather than Miss Riley. We did, there was a scene at the store, and two readers have already reached out. Just, net, just need you to know, nobody changed this. <laughs> and so this is why I sweat this so much. We, Random House is wonderful. Benjamin Dreyer, who's the chief copy editor, who's author of Dreyer's English, oh, yeah. fantastic book, uh -huh. and is also a dear friend, wrote to me right away and said, "Do you have any mista mistakes? You any any corrections?" I panicked. I, what kind of corrections? What's going on? No, no, no. If you find any mistakes in the book, just let us know because with every reprint, it's already in its second printing. It went into a second printing before it came out. And um, they're going to keep updating it. They can update the Kindle and the Nooks, right, the eBooks right away. And they'll, they'll um, fix the next edition of whatever it is. So you never stop wanting to be accurate, which is why I tried so hard to get the right month, the right year of movies, and, because somebody out there is going to know you're wrong. It's why I don't call this town Ashtabula. My editor said early on, you can make it a lot like it if you want, but do not give it a real town, a town of a real, you know, a real name of a town, because everybody's going to tell you what you're getting wrong about that town. And so that's how I came up with Erie Town. That's, yeah, that we actually, one of our questions um, that I had come up with was asking if Erie Town is based on any particular town. And then when I was doing more research, I was like, oh, she's from Ashtabula. That kind of answers that question, <laughs> yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, we, Certainly um, there are parts of Ashtabula in that book, clearly. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're both Northeast Ohio kids. I grew up in Lorraine and right on the, the water oh. as well. So yeah, and um, actually speaking of Kent State, so this is another thing while we we're kind of mentioning it. So you talked about your experience there and then also being a professor. So recently we had um, Deborah Wiles on the podcast. I interviewed her. She wrote a book called Kent State. And it's basically a reexamining of what happened on May 4th, 50 years ago, from told from all these different perspectives. It's a really like quick book, but it's just beautifully written. And it's very close to home for me. My parents were both on the campus students when May 4th happened. 
and oh my so, goodness yeah so it's when when um i actually think that might have been a penguin book as well and like when i was pitched it at a if i wanted to interview her at ala i like auto cap all, all cap responded how important it was to me that i get to talk to her about this but along those lines you know i know that you studied journalism while you were there and you were there a few years after may 4th yeah. so I, i'm curious you know did they kind of teach i'm curious how it was covered when you were there and the impact it made as a student and then to kind of expand on that like anything your thoughts on the state of journalism and how you would teach like what's going on right now when when classes pick back up i know that that's like two completely separate questions but. that's all right let's start with the make four stuff um, yeah. i started there in the fall of 75 mm -hmm. and kent state really was not willing to own its history at all at that point there was the construction of the gymnasium that activists were worried was going to cover part of the historical site. Mm -hmm. um, we were swarmed by national media on every anniversary. Um, I would not have gone back to Kent State to teach if they had not owned up to their history. That's how much it mattered to me. Right. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the museum there that they have and the markers and mm -hmm. that is such a different world. And most of my classes, um, this this was the exception because we were we ended up on the web for the second half. But um, I showed the segment of Ken Burns Vietnam series. I believe it's episode eight that is about Kent State, and mm -hmm. it's you know he he came to Kent just to get a visual, just to look at it. He started learning more about it and decided they had to do a bigger segment on it. And it it really is important to me for another reason, as we've established. Like I grew up in Ashtabula. I grew up in Ashtabula County. That county lost 26 boys in the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and so many more served and, and came home so different. And of course, I included that in the novel. And part of what else I included was this experience for Sam that I had. And until I went to Kent State, I didn't know that there were people who didn't know somebody who had served in Vietnam. I thought everyone knew somebody. That's when I first became aware of class. And of course, my town would send the black boys and the working class boys, period, and the farm boys. Um, there weren't a lot of college deferrals in my county, right? And so all of that was important to me. And I would love to know your parents' perspective because they were there on that day. Five years later, it felt like nothing in terms of mm -hmm. passage of time. It was still so raw. And it, it informed my work. I'm sure it certainly has informed my career um, because another group of what they call the underdog, I don't really like that term, but I'm associated with it all the time and when people write about me, um, are people who served in the war. In mm -hmm. lost family in Vietnam. And certainly um, Kent State was a monumental moment in our nation's history. And I'm glad that now all of our students have to learn about it. They learned about it in freshman, in their freshman year, mm -hmm. which is such a different experience mm -hmm. than what we had. As for the state of journalism, Adam, uh, I was on campus. I, it was my only my second semester teaching there when Donald Trump was elected president. And the day after the election, I've described it as feeling like it was triage. Um, I had a line outside my door of students running down the hallway, and many of them hadn't taken me for class, but they knew, you know, they knew my work, they knew who I was. Um, and they were so upset that this man who had been attempting to demonize journalists had just become president, not to mention the DACA student in my office. What a day that was. But what has impressed me so much is how they have rallied and pivoted to this sense of mission they have about their work. I mean, during the campaign, I would ask regularly, all right, who's covering the Trump rally in Strongsville? Who's covering it? And if anyone was, I would stop everything and we would talk about safety measures. This is back in 16. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. because I was concerned about how the rhetoric was driving up this mob mentality towards journalists and I wanted them to be safe. Of course, now the conversation is going to be so much more intense and we're going to have a, we all will have some talking points for them to make sure that they know how to take care of themselves in these settings. Um, there shouldn't be any rallies, is my opinion, of course, but there will be, uh, as we know, at least mm -hmm. from what we've seen in the last week with Donald mm -hmm. Trump, and most people will not be wearing masks. Masks. So there's so much going on with that. Journalism is a real in a really tough time. It's not the first time it's been a tough time for journalism. I am asked this all the time. Do you have any hope for the profession? And I said, I do. I'm teaching the people mm -hmm. who give me hope. Uh, I think young journalists are going to help sort this out for us. And I love being at my alma mater because many of them are first in their family to go to college, just as I was. Virtually none of them come from wealth. And they are so wise. Of it. They, work, they are so used to hard work because they're all working outside of college. You know, they have mm -hmm. these jobs. They're showing up every time for class, virtually every time. I have so little issue with attendance in my students. Um, and I just, if more news organizations were hiring young journalists like my students, they would not have, and I said this at a conference shortly after the election of editors, they would not have missed the Trump phenomenon. I am, I am convinced of that because first of all, many of them are related to Trump's, they're driving through Trump country to get to Kent State. They were talking to so many people, even if they didn't agree with them, who were supporting Trump, they would not have missed it in the same way. They would have said, we better go start talking to the people who are usually invisible because many of them are not gonna vote for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. I love my students. Can you tell? I just, I, <laughs> yes. Nobody warned me. I knew I'd be fond of them. Nobody warned me how much I would love my students. They are no, I so mean, hard to teach right now, but I just love them. Yeah. I sort of thinking about that, you know, there's a lots of conversations about this idea of internships and how internships um, are often inaccessible to the students you're talking about because they can't take exactly. them unpaid. Like they need, jobs they don't mm -hmm. have the time to just not work and um yeah i mean you know when you have a profession like journalism which is unfortunately suffering it's there are a lot of missed opportunities for people not recognizing what they have in students like yours i feel very strongly about that i've been quite outspoken i'm sure it will not surprise you to hear um, I remember when the person at the New York Times in charge of recruiting interns complained about, um, I forget how he phrased it, except he made it clear it was all Ivy League students. He was, and boy, I wasn't the only one who went after him, but I rode that horse. You can better believe it. Because newspapers, news organizations can find a way to pay interns. I am convinced of this. It is such a small investment on their part, a huge investment in the future of this profession. If you only have kids of um, good fortune, children who don't have to worry about how to pay their bills are not going to have to worry about affording that internship. You are missing an entire segment of journalists who, first of all, will bring more diversity to your newsroom, which we're hearing a lot about right now. Many of us have been raising that flag for quite some time. I'm glad it's being taken seriously. So there's that. Um, and you also will get better reporting because they have connections in different um, neighborhoods. I always tell my students, you know, I, came out of journalism school rough and ready because that's how I grew up. Nobody was going to intimidate me. And if I got scared, I'd do it anyway because I was used to having to work really hard. And I was used to people treating me as invisible. And I mean, there were kids who couldn't play with me when I was growing up because their dads went to work wearing suits and ties. And my dad was a utility worker. 
So I know how all this can work. And mm -hmm. I love saying that to my students and reminding them, you've got, you've got such an advantage over some of those people who have never had to work this hard. You already know what that looks like. And you know how to talk to anyone. One of the first assignments my feature writing students always have, are you familiar with Studs Terkel's work working? Where mm -hmm. he would go and, and, and it was all in their own voice. And it was people who were hourly wage earners. They have to find someone like that. And that's their first reported story. And what I love is watching their faces and their this light up and the energy they get about this. One of my favorites was the guy under the campus, uh, underground, but you know, the heating vents in the winter, you, you feel all this heat when you, he's the guy who keeps it all running. And it never occurred to the student that that person even existed. Mm -hmm. And he was in charge of so many people, so much of the facility. These are wonderful moments because it teaches students early to look for the stories elsewhere. Don't ride with the pack. Go find the, the story behind the stories. And that's how you tell the bigger story of America. Um. I'm kind of laughing just because so I was uh, I played baseball in college and so my parents had this agreement with me they said as long as you're you keep your grades up while you're in college your quote-unquote job is being a baseball player at, at John Carroll wow. as much as like a second the amount of time that they ask requires oh, it is yeah especially that's our, like, that's our youngest daughter's alma mater by the way John yeah, Carroll. Oh, what, yeah position, what position did you play I could hit so they just found a place for me usually in the outfield or first base but as long as I learned early on that if you could hit they would find a place for you in the field so it was more more offense than defense. But when I was going to college, when I would have time off in the summer or the winter, or before I went to college, my dad, who is an insurance agent, but grew up very, very blue, uh, you know, middle class and blue collar, he sent me to work at some of my friends uh, whose fathers were foremans in factories. So like when I was in high school and in college, I, during the summer, if I wasn't playing baseball, I was pouring concrete in like this 130 degree room. And his exact reason was like, you need to understand that even though we're a little bit fortunate now, we were not always fortunate. And it's very, it's very easy to see how a path can take you any direction. And there's incredible people in all classes and you need to be interacting with them. And it was like such a, I remember hating him at the time. I was like, I'm melting dad. This is the worst, but you're absolutely right. And I, to pull it a little bit back to, to your book, you, you have this quote in there about uh, grief being a monster that bangs at your door until you let it in yeah. and kind of sit with it for a while. And mm. I feel like with everything going on over the past couple months and trying to learn as much and educate myself, especially with everything going on with the, the protests and everything, you also have talked about not only sitting with grief, which is a quote from the book, but I've also seen you write about being, allowing yourself to find moments of joy in, yeah. in what's going on right now and things like that. So when you're teaching your students this the importance of finding these stories and obviously right now everything feels like for the past four years at least it feels like every journalistic story you would tell would be a tough one to tell do you make a point as a professor to say hey where you can try to find these moments of joy because that's just as important for you as a journalist and also for the reader to be able to take something away that maybe gives them some hope I also say, yes, and it's part of their lives. It, it needs to be part of their lives that we should never feel guilty that we can have moments of happiness in this really frequently dark time, right? And, but also, we find it in the work, in the classroom. We workshop a lot, so, which means by mid-semester, mid they're critiquing one another's works. And I do that in part because I want them to learn to be good editors, too. I want them to be able to take criticism. I want them to be constructive. But what I love is when we have these moments, like a student will say, oh, you know what? we don't need that cliche or, well, you know, you've got the verb tense going on here, but one of the things I tell them all the time is 
you had to learn all the rules before we decide which ones we're going to break. And I love watching them grow as writers. And we try to celebrate it in many different ways, um, watching them become so supportive of one another, watching them cheer one another on and hope, and very excited when they get something published. Because the other thing I try to teach them is, look, we all need our tribe. We all need people who are going to support what we're going to do and who are going to be genuinely happy for our success. Because success is not a zero-sum game. Somebody else gets the lead story on the homepage. Somebody else in my day gets on page one. That doesn't mean... That, it didn't cost you anything. Your time can come. Learn from it. What did they do that got the attention for this story, right? Or it, so there are so many ways to find it. Um, I have found developing the personal relationships with the students and helping them get to know one another better. We have um, table tents. I didn't know they were called that until my daughter told me. I make them out of old folders. And the first few weeks, uh, I make them put them in front of themselves every class. I thought originally I was just doing it for myself until some of them said, they have been through entire classes, entire semester, and don't know the names of everyone in their class. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking 15, 15, 20 max, up in nine or 10. How can this be? So now I make them write on the front and back if we're in regular classroom, if we're in the circle, just the front, because it makes such a difference to know one another. When you can say, by, you know, if I can say to Adam and Jill, and I can talk to you by name, it closes the distance so much faster than if I just see you as somebody I'm gonna to talk to for a little bit, and then you're gone out of my life. Because we never know when the next teacher is showing up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I love what your dad did. I, would, I, I am sure I'm going to recount that story, first of all, to my husband. Um, you have a wise dad. That was a really, it wasn't just a smart thing to do. It was a compassionate thing to do. Um, and that you hated him was your job in that moment. You know that, right? <laughs> Making it do things. But it taught you so much about the invisibility of people who matter and how wrong that can be. So mm -hmm. if I weren't willing to listen, I couldn't have heard that story. That's what, one of the things I try to impart to my students. We think we're interviewing to get more information. We never know when that next person we interview is going to be someone who's going to change our lives because of something he or she said. And it makes us look at life differently. Um, to tie it back into Kent State, like I said, when he went home from the semester after when the shooting had happened, because on May 4th, they the Kent State was like, go home, you have to leave right now. When right. he went back, he went to work at the factory that my grandfather was working at and he would always give me a hard time when I would come home and complain working in this factory he would say well at least you aren't working with people who are telling you that those national guard should have shot all of you and I was like yep. oh so I have nothing to complain about it's warm where I'm working but you were basically being told you shouldn't be alive because you had long hair so right he was the enemy was, yeah even though I was doing those miserable menial <laughs> tasks and sweating he would always be like you could always be a little bit tougher just so you know <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, I just like want to talk to you for like ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, for us, like we, we both having grown up in Northeast Ohio, we obviously know your name and the plane dealer when it was, you know, still a, a paper, paper and not just yes. yeah. .com. Um, You know, we have seen your name. So I, it was, people won't hear this because it's before the recording, but you were like joking with us. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm holding up you guys. I'm taking up your time. Or it's like, this is definitely the peak of Jill and I's day, 100%. Wow, well, that means a lot to me. And, you know, it, it, it's it's so um, gratifying to see young people still staying in Northeast Ohio mm. because you know how many leave, right? And I, I know that the only way we get better and improve, and I mean, I love this part of the country. We live in the city of Cleveland on purpose. I love where we live. Um, and I love see, meeting more and more young people who are staying 
living downtown, many of them, or living in Lakewood is another place up. And Jill, do you live in Lakewood also? I do. I live in Lakewood now. Yeah. yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Hudson. So I'm like on oh, the other did. extreme from, yeah, yeah. yeah, but you know, on this, I've talked to my sister about this. Um, my sister, uh, my sister and I both moved away. Um, I came back about 11 or 12 years ago. She and her family um, moved back about a year and a half ago. And uh, she's in Hudson now living with my dad. And there was maybe two weeks ago, a protest on the green, like a Black Lives Matter protest on the green in Hudson. And really encouraging news. Yes, it is. And um, over like the next couple of days, the group kept getting bigger. And we were sort of, you know, talking about this. And I was talking about it with classmates of mine, um, some who have moved away, some who have come back. And it was just a reminder that, you know, I'm almost 40. Like my classmates are almost 40. We're like living, like we're the ones coming back. We're the, we're the adults. And we, it makes sense that there is now people in Hudson who are pro Black Lives Matter because it's us. Like, it was just like this weird moment (laughs) to realize that, you know, like we're, we're that generation that has come back and is changing what a city like Hudson looks like and what a city like Hudson thinks. And obviously there were people, older people who were not so much of a fan of it, but, um, Yeah, it was when she told me that it was just very encouraging to know that, you know, cities like Hudson are progressing in a way that they weren't when I was growing up there. I think one of the things that we're seeing across the country is the racists are getting scared because it's finally dawning on them just how dramatically they are outnumbered. And this is a time like no other that I've lived in. And I've lived in some pretty tumultuous times because I'm 62. And I'm so encouraged by exactly what you were referring to, the young people who have decided that they will not be silent. I worry about their safety, of course. I want everybody wearing masks. But, you know, I'm a mom and a grandmother, and that's who I am. And I care about public health a lot. Um, But I am so uh, inspired by the sight of this and by the number of voices rising up. There's just no way anymore that the the traditional narrative of the victors will prevail mm-hmm. because first of all, who will win and who will lose has changed and who, who will be silent and who won't has so <laughs> it's not, And I also tell my students a lot, and certainly I would tell that it, say this, uh, both of you, you will be the storytellers of this pandemic because it, we will feel the ramifications of it for decades and you will outlive, you know, my hope is that you'll outlive all of us who are older and there will be so many stories yet to tell about this that we can't even know what they are yet because we're in the middle of all this. I had somebody ask me the other day in one of these interviews, if I were writing the book now, would I have written it differently? And I said, no, I, I wouldn't have touched the coronavirus yet because we don't even know, even though we're in the thick of it, and perhaps because we're in the thick of it, we don't even know all the narratives that will exist yet out of this. Do I take a lot of notes? You bet. And I hope all of you are keeping you know, both of you and all the young people are still at least trying to keep journals right now because one of the things I learned from writing and this lovely wife is you will remember the historical moments because you can look them up. When was this debate? When was that? You know, but how you felt in given moments, you will forget. As much as you think you could never forget something, you will forget how you felt in the moment. And that is going to be such an important part of this record. 
exactly that point. There's, um, I remember when I was in high school was when nine 11 happened and we had a history teacher who at the time in my mind, he was like a thousand, he was probably like 45. <laughs> I just had no frame of reference cause I was, you know, 16 or however old I was. And he, and I'm like, we were obviously, we spent the whole day just talking about what was going on. And he told us, he's like, I remember the exact moment when he found out that JFK had been assassinated. And he's like, I can remember exactly what I was doing on that particular day. And much like 9-11, I can remember exactly where I was on that day. But to your point, like, and not over like a long, a long moment like this, like the pandemic that will be talked about for years and years and years, <clears throat> and will be in history books and things. It's, it's not one day. It's like, I'll probably always remember <clears throat> the day that we were told at Overdrive, like, hey, you're going to go home and you're not going to come back. Right. That I'll probably remember. But right. like, exactly what you said, I'm glad I'm like, mm-hmm. keeping track of like, okay, I'm feeling very dark in these moments or I'm feeling moments of happiness and like keeping track of that because when it's so long, it can be hard to, to remember. It can be. And I saw the evolution of feelings even in my students because they were first, uh, when some of their essays, I had them doing a lot more essays than normal because I thought, well, this is a time to start processing what's happening. And it lets me keep in touch and find out how they're doing. Um, and there's a lot of disbelief or a lot of, this will pass pretty quickly in Mar- mid-March, you know, the second mm-hmm. week of March when everybody's at home. By the middle of April, there was such a, I mean, it was really significant, the shift, and a lot more worry about how long this would last, a lot more sinking in, this is our new normal, and it doesn't feel normal at all, and, you know, I have students who went back and were responsible for helping take care of older relatives, taking care of siblings, expected to work to contribute to the family income, so they were at greater risk, some of them, and so there was just all this going on. and I, that's why I keep encouraging them to take all these notes because we, our feelings are changing as we go on this, right? I mean, I thought, I told Sharon, I really felt like we were starting to hit our rhythm. So I was pretty scared of this initially. And now with Dr. Fauci's testimony yesterday and some of the numbers going up in California and Texas, we're seeing the impact of opening too soon, right? Mm-hmm. So again, we need to keep track of where we're feeling and what we're feeling because your feelings change depending on what you're hearing in the news. Man, I just want to, I like just said, I just want to talk to you literally all day. I, <laughs> um, I, I suppose we should wrap up our recording and just to be fair to everyone listening, but um, kind of a, a last question for you. Like, what do you hope readers take away from reading your book? Well, in my experience, the best fiction has helped me understand myself better. It's one of the reasons I'm such a believer in novels because reading them and absorbing them in the process of doing this, we often ask questions of ourselves or perhaps we start to understand better something about ourselves. And so what I'm hoping is that this is a very personal experience for people who read it. Um, I'll tell you one of the most gratifying things that has happened is as a columnist, you're used to people weighing in, right? You get their opinions all the time and they share their stories. And I thought I'm really going to miss that because now I'm doing a novel and, you know, I had not anticipated how many people would, my email's easy to find. I'm also, you know, my Facebook page is public and Twitter, you can find me. And so people are sending me all these stories about their lives. And what is so moving is some of them, I haven't thought about this in years, or I never thought about my mother having gone through something like this. I never, it's just been so moving, which makes me hopeful that perhaps that is happening to some extent that people are, are experiencing it in personal ways. And 
that's where the conversation begins, right? After reading a novel. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, Connie, that this has been, I guess that you were joking before we started that you were like keeping us from doing other things, which you 100% were. This has been an absolute honor. Before we even knew we were going to do this and we heard it might happen, we were both like over the moon. So oh, thank, you. thank you for joining us today. I love this conversation. You two are a lot of fun to hang out with. Thank you. <laughs> you are welcome back quite literally anytime. Yeah, anytime you, like. you want. Anytime. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Bless you both. Yeah. All right. Stay safe, okay? You Mass in public. Yeah. Yes. All right. Always, always, always. Always. Thanks, right. Connie. This is your mom talking now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bye. Connie. Bye. Bye. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.